Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from BBC Studios Global Senior Vice President of Format Sales, Andre Renault, and Vice Studios Head of Distribution, B. Hegedus, about how the unscripted business has navigated the pandemic and the shows they've got coming up for 2021. The BBC Studios Showcase usually takes place in the UK city of Liverpool, but as with most events in the annual international TV industry calendar, this year's edition is happening online. The UK public broadcaster's commercial arm is offering overseas buyers the chance to meet and hear from some of the world's top programme makers and key commissioners about their very latest projects. BBC Studios Global Senior Vice President of Format Sales, Andre Renault, spoke to Ed Waller about the challenges and opportunities last year presented how the format's business adapted to the pandemic and the shows it's offering at the 2021 Virtual Showcase. Andre, after the seismic events of of 2020, how has the production freeze, which I guess disproportionately affected drama production, how has it impacted the demand for unscripted formats worldwide? It's really interesting. And I think think every company went through this at the moment. You know, March or April last year, everyone had this panic meeting inside going, what are we going to do? What does this mean? How is this going to work? How do we mitigate it? And there there were a couple of things that have borne out over the course of the last year. One is to say that actually people spend a lot of time working on development. And so there's actually been a lot of creativity that's flowing through now off the back of it. But equally, there were gaps in schedules that came through for a bunch of reasons. One was uh, there were no live events, so there was no sports. Uh, There were gaps in schedules on major programming that may have to have been moved, major entertainment shows. And what it meant is that actually they did, people did want to have content available quickly, safely made, and in in an environment that felt like it could navigate some sort of partial or post-lockdown environment. The thing that really came through on that was game shows. Game shows are already naturally designed to have multiple episodes that can get recorded in small sets and studios. And we saw that ourselves. It got borne out with the recommission of The Weakest Link in uh, in the US with Jane Lynch. We actually had Weakest Link as well, commissioned in Greece and Russia. Shows like A Question of Sport, which actually came on in Slovakia and Greece as well, as a way of filling that gap. That was the answer that started to come through on it. And I think that there was a lot of conversation about making sure that people understood how these programs were being made safely. So viewers at home felt comfortable with understanding what that is. As the year progressed, it really has now started to take shape that people are looking for things like family-friendly, escapist programming, entertainment, you know. We don't want to see this Zoom production on screen anymore. People really want to be taken away. And because people are at home now, and I don't know about you, but I I sit in this room almost all day. I don't see my friends and family or my family until the end of the day. So getting things on screen now that do that is really become much more of a priority. Shows like Bake Off and Dancing with the Stars, those are the shows that we can start seeing back on screen. And and so from a format commissioning and and sales point of view, it's actually been, we've been really lucky to be able to help fill that gap. How does the development process happen over Zoom? Because normally it's it's creative people in the room bouncing ideas off each other. I mean, do you lose a lot over Zoom or is it just more efficient? Tell us about that. Look, I'd say this way, Zoom's actually really democratic in a way that we're all leveled. We're all the same. I have a team around the world. And one of the things I've always worried about when you have one office with a number of people and then someone on a screen is that you can't always get the feedback and input from someone on the screen. So actually right now we're all just rectangles in each other's laptops or, or, or screens. It is actually a lot more democratic. Look, and then as far as development's concerned, one of the phrases that really struck me, a customer said this to me earlier this year, that creativity thrives in limitations. And it's actually really true. The fact that we've had to come up with new ways of working on the fly, actually, that is what developers and producers do best. So how do you make Dancing with the Stars in the US without an audience uh, or in Australia where they ended up doing rooftop dances on the top of their hotels, you know, that still kept 
kept the spirit and the essence going, but finding really creative ways of bringing something to life. Creativity thrives in limitations has almost become my mantra as the year goes through. And it bears out for me, even in licensing, to make sure that we're working with our customers to understand what their needs are and say, yeah, of course we can make some adjustments to this. You're going to go on at that time of year, no problem. We understand that. That's been the most important thing as far as development and, and the conversation around development's been concerned. Just listening. And the pitching process, obviously buyers are, are used to going to Cannes, uh, LA, wherever, Liverpool, or seeing the talents, chatting to the producer in the flesh. Is there some Zoom fatigue among the buyers, do you think? Gosh, I know there's Zoom fatigue among me, uh, sort of getting into those calls and, and finding the ways through. Yeah, I think we've all had to find ways to adapt to how we're working. And, and I think receiving pitches is probably, you know, tough at the best of times and having to pick out what those points are. I think it's become even more important that we're clear in what we're saying, what the essence of the program is and really bringing them on the journey. I think, you know, I'd, I'd love that we were having this discussion in Liverpool this year. It, it, it's always been one of the highlights. I've only been in the company for four years and every year I go I go and I see, you know, the magnitude of, of what we can bring to life is always really helpful. But I'm sincere in saying that the shows that we do produce and the things that we do produce speak for themselves. And so being able to show something and have somebody watch something is just as powerful. And in fact, maybe you've got them even more concentrated because you're in this time together. No distractions. I'm interested in what you say about the production process. Obviously, necessity is the mother of invention. Are, are we seeing sort of development of more hub-based formats because that's suitable for safe, COVID-friendly production processes? Well, I haven't seen that myself, but I can understand why it's something that people would be looking at. What I think that people want to understand is what, what works in their own market. We have different governmental restrictions. We have different conversations that are happening in different places at each time. The real question is, how do you adapt, right? And how do you adapt an idea? And where are the ideas coming from that you can you can adapt in. So I don't necessarily know if it's about creating a hub, but I'll tell you what, if I have someone who wants to do that and have an idea, please call me, we'll do it. But I think it's actually about saying, well, what is it that we can do safely? What can we do that doesn't endanger people? How can we follow great health and safety protocols and still deliver quality programming back to viewers? Now, I'm just looking at some of the headlines that C21 has published about you guys. First look deal with youngest media. You're rolling out a 1% club in places like France. Tell, tell us about some of the recent deals that you've done over Zoom, presumably. Well, yeah. Yeah, the, the deal with Youngest is really wonderful. And what's nice about the nature of that deal is as part of not just working together on things that are getting developed, but getting access to some of that library. I was telling you that game shows works really well. You know, I'm really, really excited that we can take things like Small Fortune out into the market and 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 see how that will work through. And actually the story for 1% Club, and I actually think is a wonderful show. And it, again, it's a game show and a quiz show, but with a difference. It's not about what you know, it's just about how you watch the questions. And I think that that created really good resonance for France. And I'm very confident that I'll be able to talk to you again in another month or two and say that there's more people who are coming on board with that idea. I think we're really lucky because particularly in France, we have a production company there. So they, they can make those discussions in person still as best as possible within their own within their own lockdown. But I think, again, the ideas are so powerful on their own and particularly 1% Club, which is a, a really visual quiz. You can just put it up on the screen and people will be able to see what it is and go, ah, I get it. Now, obviously, the last 12 months haven't been all about COVID. There's been a massive boom in streaming as well. So obviously, that's working hand in hand in terms of the, the consumer. But what does it mean in terms of the format business? It's interesting. I, the questions getting asked about streamers and, and talking about sort of competition and erosion, my answer is always the same, which is I just see it as a new avenue for licensing, right? It's a new it's a new type of customer that we work with and these things can work together. Global streamers, you can see that they're using brands as a way to 
grow their subscribers. And these are brands that people know. To me, it's a really natural next step that you can take brands as formats that people know and bring it into platforms in order to say that you can build more subscriber bases on original content. I'd like to be doing more, in fact, and I can see a world where those things can come to life in a really meaningful way. Obviously, the deal, the kind of deal that you do with a streamer, a global streamer particularly, is, is very different to the sort of strategy of rolling a format out territory by territory and building uh, incremental value add as, as it becomes a hit in each territory. Tell us how you decide, you know, the, the factors that go into that decision about uh, how, how to roll out that format. Well, look, I honestly believe this in negotiation. That it's, it's important to understand what people, what they really need. Who are you giving exclusivity against? Who are the competitors that you need? Because sometimes, you know, there's a difference between what people want and what people need. But on, And on our side too. And how you find that path through is actually part of the, mo the most important part of the discussion. So how you take something and where you take to market, well, some of it's about demand, of course, some of it's about the money, of course, but actually it's about where, where is the best value for the viewer? Where will that bring it? What will bring it? And how does that, how does that deliver it? So for example, with, with streamers, as I said, brand is important. So talent or a title, right? Those are the things that are really important. And actually by nature, that then means that you might need other countries to have come on board first in order to bring that to life. I've seen other companies do really excellent global deals. I would love, for example, to see something get picked up by global streamer where they commission in three different territories. That'd be amazing. But finding the right balance with our traditional partners and the slots that they have and finding something for streamers, it's actually no brainer because it's different types of content they're looking for ultimately. It, it tends to self-sort, if I'm going to be honest. There's been a recent development in the growth of uh, local s one services. So you could marry to, together the sort of the territory by territory deal uh, as you would with a streamer. Is that something that uh, excites you? Absolutely. And and I think it becomes more important, you know, that we, again, not even just because of COVID, but of stretch, of stretch budgets now, even more so in development and commissioning, we do have to find more creative ways of working. And I, I'm sincere when I say that it's really about understanding who, who your competitors are. If we as an organization can bring more people on board and to the table up front and it helps share in a meaningful way that doesn't impact, I'm all for it. I'd love to see something have that. And it, it has happened, right? So there is a world where you traditionally have had a pay in a free TV window on something. It exists. We're just changing who, you know, instead of pay, maybe it's it's an SVOD service. It's just finding the way that the window works for everybody and us all being open-minded to what that looks like for us. And how do you think the global expansion of BritBox might impact your the, the kind of distribution partnerships that you'll be doing in future for your, your shows and formats? I don't know if it will, to be honest with you. I, I think, look, if BritBox wants to commission content from me, I'll happily license it to them. And, uh, you know, or it'd be, it'd be really, really helpful and exciting for us and something to be part of. But if you look at the nature of what BritBox is, it's about bringing the best of British to the world. We do that too. But for us, it's about IP iteration and how you localize it. I think those things complement each other more than sort of create chaos. I think it's a really, it's a really nice thing to see the rollout of, of BritBox, you know, even in South Africa, we announced the other day, like, I think it's really good. It's about complementing what's already going on into the market. And before we get into the, the new, the new slate of formats, are there any other issues or opportunities in 2021 that you're, uh, you're, you're building your strategy around? Yeah. So I think looking at what I said before around sort of family friendly, feel good entertainment, I think that's going to be something that will continue now. And I, I, I do see us being able to provide some of that to viewers at home, not just from, you know, Bake Off and, and Dancing with the Stars. I don't know if you remember the format, uh, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, 
It was on in the BBC. We actually just brought it back uh, in the Netherlands. It's going to air this weekend. It's been off air for 10 years there. That's a perfect example of something that is family-friendly, feel-good entertainment, and also a brand that people can understand. There's a nostalgia to it that works really well. We've got a lot of those in our in our library. I see more of that. And I know that you've been asking me about unscripted, but particularly in Asia, we've seen a lot of growth in our scripted formats. And I think that there's room for that to continue. You know, uh, Dr. Foster in Korea, locally called World of the Married, is currently the highest rated cable drama of all time. And that's something we're really, really proud of. And the work with partners in, in market is, is really, really important for us to continue to do that. And I can see a world where that scripted business in Asia, particularly, but uh, elsewhere too, can, can really benefit. And I can see uh, growth there too. Obviously, the, the uh, showcase is all about bringing some new, new IP and established IP to, to the global buying community. Give us a little glimpse of, of what you have on offer for showcase this year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we already talked about 1% clubs. So thank you for bringing that one up. But we're, we're, we're taking that back into showcase. Case. In the unscripted sphere, we've got a couple of other shows too. Uh, one of them is called This Is My House. Uh, and this is one that's been made by expectation for BBC One. And it's a really simple format that I quite love. It's, it's four people who are all standing in front of you saying, this is my house, but only one of them is telling the truth. And the other three are actors. And there's a panel of celebrities who are watching this and trying to guess which person actually owns ev- the house and everything in it. And if that person can successfully manage to convince people, they'll win a cash prize. Really, really lovely. It's hosted by Stacey Dooley uh, in the UK and in and Richard Bacon, who helped devise it or who devised the show. Really, really nice coming out. Six episodes on BBC One. And looking at finding the real to the fake, there's another show that we were bringing out called Factor Fake. And it's from a company called Sandrats. It's it's an Austrian format that uh, aired on ORF. And it's actually really looking at helping people decipher fake news. So looking at those vi- the, those viral clips and saying, hey, was it, is this real? You know, there's a, it's a panel show where celebs are saying, well, is, is that real or is it not? And they end up bringing in things to try and s- demonstrate, yeah, that was real or no, it wasn't and through a lot of clips. So those are two of the shows that we're bringing out at Showcase. I've just got a couple of questions while I've got you about the sort of the UK's position in the uh, international format business. Obviously, as I said earlier, all the buyer's attention is on the UK at the moment, partly because of BBC Studios Showcase. Now, is the UK still seen as the top exporter of unscripted formats as it has been for the last perhaps two decades? I mean, it is the top exporter of, of formats. 30% of IP that travels still originates from the UK. And yeah, that number is getting smaller and that's fine. We've got plenty to go around, but it's still likely that the UK will end up being a home for traveling IP. That, I, I, I think that will remain the same for at least at least some time. Well, how do you explain the sort of UK's dominance over the last 20 years in, in the unscripted uh, business? Well, look, I think some of it's about creative investment. There, there have been really good budgets that, that broadcasters have been able to put in development. That's great. There's been groups of people who've been able to put in development. And if you look at the nature of the cycle of how shows get developed, you can have a really good six to eight episode series that really delivers you can try and test it on it and you've got really good audience data that you can put through. I'm not from the UK. I'm originally from Canada. I'm used to actually seeing programming come from other countries that go next to originating programming. But in the UK, people are used to seeing original ideas and that's why you get so many coming through. You've also got a breadth of commissioning broadcasters with unique ideas and tones of voice so that you can try out different types of things that reach out in all levels. I think all of that combined means that you'll continue to have IP that that will come through and, and, and translate into other viewers. Obviously, the UK position is, is being challenged by producers and distributors from other countries. Where, where's the challenges come from? The, the, the rivals to the UK's crown, if you like. Hey, I actually don't even see it as rivals. I'm thrilled that ideas are coming from everywhere now. You know, we've seen stuff coming from Israel for a really long time. There's beautiful IP coming from Mexico. I've been watching some fabulous Spanish drama recently. 
I, you know, I'm someone who loves TV. Like that's the reason why I work in the industry. So being able to see those coming through is really wonderful because it, it forces us to remain inspired and inspiring, right? It challenges us to keep going. So if you want to have a great Nordic noir, beautiful, have a great Nordic noir. If you want a really great Dutch format, and by the way, the Dutch have always been developing really good IP, the US as well, by all means do it. But there's some great shows coming from Quebec. There's some great shows coming from Cambodia. And it just, it's nice to be able to see that because those things tend to mean that we will remain on our toes as well to say, how do we stay at the front of that too? And as the UK networks import more formats from other places, as you mentioned, South Korea and elsewhere, what do you think the impact that will be on the, on the supply lines of original IP from the UK as networks embrace IP from other countries? I still think there will always be an opportunity in a home and particularly in big primetime slots for originated ideas. I really do. And I think what's nice is being able to see how that complements. So in Instead of perhaps rerunning something a certain number of times, maybe run it a few less and get something else in. It's a really good idea. I don't know about you, but I've watched everything. Like while I've been at home, I've watched everything. I've watched everything on my list. I've watched everything on my secondary list. Give me more, right? Give me more content. I think there's space for it. And you can see how even traditional linear broadcasters are doing that by finding space on their own catch up or on demand services, originating content there. It's reflected around the world too. The Netherlands is commissioning stuff just for their, well, traditionally catch up services, but actually on-demand services associated with networks. It allows you a little bit more freedom and flexibility. We've seen the benefit of that anyway with BBC3, right? Moving online, it's actually been really helpful for us to put programming in. And you, you'll you see yourself some of the great shows that are coming from BBC3 that either getting airplay on, on channels or driving viewership into that service. So I don't see it deteriorating. I actually still see it complementing. And what's BBC Studios doing to make sure that it's tapping into all this newfound creativity in other parts of the world? Well, we constantly are working with partners, I think from the, the chair that I sit in and the, in the division that we sit in, we have production companies set up in, in markets around the world who are there developing IP and working as producer for hire and also bringing in our stories. You know, Our responsibility still remains to do whatever we can to continue putting money back into the BBC and returns into the BBC, keeping the license fee low. So I think we're always working on it. But I, the easiest way to say that is, is about all the work that our production companies are doing on the ground right now too. And just lastly, any other future plans or priorities or developments for 2021 you want to share? I would like to sell shows. So if anybody wants to buy any of them, I'll happily do it. We're so lucky with the breadth of the catalog that we have. And we're so lucky with the customers with whom we work. I will always be happy to talk to more people. I will always be happy to look at new ideas. As I said, that this is selfish because it's it's sort of my line of business, but the, the scripted business in Asia is really interesting for me. I'd really love to see more of that. I'd love to see more, more of the work that we're doing in Latin America as well. And tapping into the work that teams are developing on the ground. If we could get more scripted business away, I'd be thrilled. I think seeing some of those entertainment shows, you know, I mentioned Maria, even, uh, I don't know if you remember a, a show called Just the Two of Us. I'd love to see shows like that really, really come back to the fore, but always open to chat. Andre Renault from BBC Studios talking with Ed Waller. Vice Media Group last year launched sales arm Vice Distribution and appointed former ITV Studios Lionsgate and MTG exec B Hegedus to run it. The company has recently unveiled its first slate and Hegedus spoke to Karolina Kaminska about this, the new division strategy and what we can expect to see from it in the year ahead. 
we are a very new player. Actually, we launched last summer with the aim of monetizing our, our invaluable IP, which is um, very well known around, uh, in the market with youth audiences. However, we mainly distributed it on our own platforms around the world. And we haven't really monetized it with other distribution partners, bigger channels. And we've seen an opportunity with the emergence of new players in the market to monetize our IP on a broader scale with bigger partnerships. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to work with players around the globe on larger partnerships. Some of them we've already had and we would like to just scale it up and we are scaling it up currently. Some partners have been actively searching for Vice and partnerships with Vice, but because we never had our own distribution company, um, we never really started in a systematic way distributing our content. So we launched this distribution company, first of all, because of the need in the market for premium factual content. And especially with youth audiences, there is a huge demand for our content. And through our newly launched distribution group, we are going to be able to maximize revenues from our IP from across our company. And also the investment in premium programming is very important for us. And we are looking for partnerships to make sure that we can scale up in a meaningful way. Can you talk about some of the partnerships that Vice Distribution has made so far? Well, we had a longstanding and really successful partnership with SBS. We renewed that partnership recently, and that partnership is something that's highly beneficial and mutually positive for both parties. So the first thing I've done when I arrived to the company is renew that partnership and scale it up. Uh, we are ultimately we have an output deal with them, and we have a channel, SBS Viceland, that's doing really well in Australia. We also have partnership with Hulu in Japan, Hulu in the US, which we again renewed last year, and uh, we have an ongoing partnership with AMC in Iberia. There are a lot of other partnerships I've been working on and you will be seeing news coming out soon about them. But just generally, the partnerships we are looking at are always driven by the brand. We have a customer-facing brand. We can bring extra attention to our content. So we are not a traditional distributor where we are you know, handing over content and then letting the partners program it and market it. We have extremely successful marketing channels and our marketing power is invaluable to our buyers. So we always lead with impact and our partnerships are always bringing audiences that other distributors might not be able to bring. And how much are you focused on Vice's own IP versus your focus on third-party content? Well, we have a lot of content. Vice makes about 1,700 pieces a day. Some of it is short form. Many of that is long form and premium programming. So we have a lot of content, but we also commission content for our channels. And we work with a wide range of independent and uh, very prominent producers like Icon Films, like 44 Blue. Um, But I would say a lot of the content that we are distributing currently is produced by our award-winning Vice News team, our studios team, and our TV channels have also their own own production companies. Uh, So a lot of it is Vice, but we are working with all independent producers, anything 
something that's great and commissioned by Vice TV. I am distributing and we also own Pulse Films. So not to forget about Pulse Films, even though most of the programming is distributed by various other distributors because we just simply didn't have distribution um, when some of those programs were produced. And obviously the company has launched in the middle of a global pandemic. So what has that been like? Distributors with big library and finished programme catalogues have generally fared pretty well, given the demand for content we've seen. So how has business been in the seven months since launch? Well, luckily, we are one of the lucky ones who've already had a thousand hours of content in our catalogue. And we we were well on the way of producing another 250 hours uh, when co- pandemic hit. Obviously, there was an impact. There is an impact on everybody's producing uh, during the pandemic. We've done really well in Asia. The Asian production teams have done phenomenally well during the pandemic and they continued producing COVID safe, obviously. So some of our new programming is coming from that team. Um, the Vice News team is in a in a special place because they have boots on the ground. So they didn't have to travel. Most of our contributors and collaborators and producers live in the region where they are producing and, and making content. So we we are, I would say we are a lucky one, but it's undoubtedly. Uh, It's been a difficult time for everyone in production. For distributors, obviously, this this has been a great time. There is a huge demand for programming and um, there are more and more places to sell to, which is a dream. And was it a strategic move to launch a distribution arm during the pandemic when it became obvious that buyers were in desperate need of programmes due to production delays and so on? Or was it something Vice had in the works for a while? I believe they've been thinking about it for a while. It was more about when we should be launching this distribution company. We have a partnership with Antenna in Greece making Vice World News uh, for them, which is a, a tranche of premium amazing investigative documents politics and current affairs programming. And when when we did that partnership, we thought it was the right moment for us to start distributing our own content. Since we are making this content that's made by teams who are extremely well regarded in this space, in the news space, um, they are the Vice News um, generally, Vice News Tonight and Vice on Showtime, our flagship programs are the most awarded news programs in, in the business. So we thought, you know, it's the right moment for us when we're coming to the market with more and more programming and we're scaling up in a very aggressive way, it's the right time to start distributing our own content uh, rather than giving distribution to third parties. And you yourself, B, are also new to Vice, having joined to head the new distribution arm. How have you found your first seven months on a personal level? On a personal level, that's an easy one. (laughs) I think Vice is the most inclusive and most culturally diverse company I've ever worked at. And it's not just that it's diverse in ethnicity, but it's also diverse culturally. It's a truly international company. And not only on on a junior executive level, but also on a senior executive level. And everybody has a voice at Vice, which is really refreshing. And we are heard, which is even more important. Everybody is heard at Vice. And I don't think I've ever, ever in my life worked at a company like this. It's amazing. And the culture is just, it's something that you really don't realize how brilliant it is until you start working with Vice. And you've also just announced your spring slate at uh, Vice, which is the first slate announcement since the company launched, um, the distribution arm that is. So tell us 
a bit about that slate, maybe picking some of your highlights? Well, the new slate is really exciting. It's really exciting because it's diverse and it's, uh, it's obviously we have what we do best, which is youth culture, entertainment, pop culture, and all kinds of really exciting stories that others don't tell. But at the same time, we also have a very strong crime slate that's coming to the market, some of which are announced, some of which are going to be announced soon. And that's something that I've, I've seen the market has an increasing need for. So we have, for example, Criminal Planet, that's one of our flagship uh, Vice World News titles produced by Vice World News. And we have uh, Point Blank coming out of Asia about Asian gun culture. All these titles are really well fit into spaces where people are looking for crime and impactful crime and stories that other people don't tell. We also have, obviously, our investigative doc strand, uh, where we have really strong at and leading the charge there is QAnon, the search for Q, which has actually tripled our ratings on Vice TV for the time slot. And it's been a runaway success. And it's 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 one of the titles that literally the next day after airing, I got thousands of calls from around the world. It's impactful. It creates a buzz. It's produced the way that what Vice is very well known for, going deep into the story and uh, unpacking it in a meaningful and impactful way. We also have uh, our usual pop culture and, and lifestyle entertainment strand and the space that we're doing really well in, which is travel. Uh, we have an Unknown Amazon from Pedro Andrade, which, which is produced by a British production company, Icon Films, like we all know. And they are doing an amazing story with very challenging circumstances. They had a lot of problems with, with shooting, but they managed, they delivered, and the story is incredible. And then we have our pop culture and entertainment titles as well. Uh, most important for us is Dark Side of the Ring, because it's been so successful. And we are doing the third season now, and every season is just Get, it just gets better and better. And because of the success of Dark Side of the Ring, we also launched, we've kind of turned it into a franchise. So we are launching Dark Side of Football, which is American football, by the way, and Dark Side of the 90s. People who love and know these series, they understand that we are always going at these stories from a different angle. Dark Side of the Ring is basically talking about the wrestling community and all the, the intrigues and murders and all kinds of scandals that are happening in that community. So, And, and we're going to take this into American football, the space of American football and the 90s. It's highly anticipated. I've already pre-sold a lot of this, by the way. And then we also have Deep End, which is one of my favorites, actually, because it's talking about fan culture. It's talking about people who go a bit one step further and become obsessed with the people that are idolized. And then that could take any shape or form. It could take a shape, uh, a form of a plant, for example. One episode is talking about people who are obsessed about rare and uh, and exotic plants, and they and they have their little groups of communities where they are exchanging these plants for extremely high value plants. They are, uh, and and so there is there is a black market for plants. Who would have thought about that? Um, so that series is incredibly interesting, and I love watching that. That's something that's going to be extremely successful with all our youth audiences. So quite a variety there. Looking ahead to the coming year, what do you see as being the biggest 
biggest challenges and opportunities for the company in, in what is quite a crowded market? Well, you know, the challenge is always finding the right place for the right content. That's always a challenge, especially because right now there are so many places to sell to. So to ex- execute a strategy is very important and making sure that our content is seen in the right way and we deliver impact and we deliver value for our customers because I fundamentally believe that selling content is about delivering value to customers and then the customers come back for more. So the challenge is finding those places and making sure that we do a great job at that and that we are matching the right programming with the right buyer. And the opportunities are endless. What we are trying to do is scale up distribution quickly. Uh, You're going to see us hiring people and scaling revenues as with it because what we ultimately would like to do is fund more and more award-winning and impactful programming. And so ultimately, we will become an enabler for studios to make and the wider group to make more and more content in this in the youth culture space and impactful, meaningful, and unapologetic programming that we are usually making. But ultimately, the way we are doing distribution at the moment, so we are transitioning from a model where we were kind of selling our content and doing partnerships. So it's not like something that I invented. It's actually always existed at Vice. But I'm pulling together the teams from different regional offices who have been working on these partnerships before. Many of them are helping me right now, executing some of these partnerships. And then we will have some traditional sales uh, environment, like salespeople joining us as well. But ultimately, it's a team effort with, uh, effort within Vice. And that's why I love the company as well. It's all about the teams around the world and um, people on the ground in the local offices who are also having, they have their own relationships with local buyers. So it's more about um, making sure that we are executing um, these deals the right way and we are talking to the right partners and that we are ultimately delivering revenue to the group. So I would say I have a lot of people working with me, which is wonderful. I wouldn't call it like a distribution team yet because they also have other type of jobs. Ultimately, we will have a core team who's going to help me execute most of these these deals, but we will be always working with our local offices and people running those offices. What are Vice Distribution's plans and objectives for the rest of 2021? What can we expect to see from you? It's a very simple answer. More and more partnerships, impactful partnerships. You're going to see us doing more and more deals in Europe because I just generally think we haven't done enough in Europe yet. We've done amazing in APAC already. Um, We're going to do more and more deals in um, Latin America and the US. And ultimately, what I would like to achieve is having a different type of distribution company that's um, working across all the new media channels as well as the old and and managing it in a a seamless way. So what you're going to see is lots of different types of deals, um, not necessarily traditional deals, always leading with the brand and partnerships. B. Hegedus from Vice Distribution talking with Karolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.